hope you enjoy this message from South City C3, a location of C3 Church, Christchurch. Hey, so I am really looking forward to sharing with you guys tonight as we continue this series that we've been doing called A New Way. And uh, as Ange mentioned earlier, what we've been doing with that series is we've been exploring some different passages in the book of Luke and sort of looking at some of these really important lessons that Jesus highlighted in the book of Luke. And these are the sort of lessons that if we hear and we put into practice uh, can actually change our lives and lead to the transformation of our community. So it's been really, really good stuff so far, although there was the mild roast of a certain American in Phil's message last week. Uh, But since he gave the message so excellently and was so confident in delivering it, I think we could say that the roast could fall under the category of forgivably funny. So we're going to be looking at another passage, and we're going to be covering a lot of ground tonight. We're going to be jumping in and out of a passage in Luke 11, which contains 40 verses, 53 sentences, roughly a thousand words, and you'll be pleased to know also contains at least eight occurrences of the letter J, (laughs) which is important to know. Uh, We won't necessarily read every verse, but we're going to be exploring what I believe is a unifying theme that sort of ties all of these verses together. And um, what I was reminded of when I was looking at this scripture was an event that happened a few years back that was a source of major conflict in the world. This happening captured international headlines for weeks, and it divided the people of entire nations against one another. Family member turned against family member, and it created unprecedented social upheaval. I am talking, of course, about this dress. You will all probably remember this being posted many hundreds of times across your Facebook feed as it became the most viral thing that the world would ever see right up until COVID-19. And you'll also probably remember the way that people lost their minds arguing over whether or not this dress was black and blue or white and gold, a conflict that still causes many to simmer in anger today. (laughs) Exactly. So the interesting thing about this dress is it tended to divide people into three different camps. One camp who thought the dress was white and gold, one who thought that it was black and blue, and a third camp which included my colorblind father who said, I can't really tell what color the dress is, uh, but this is a perfect example of why social media causes mental illness. But here's the thing, there is something about a conflict that causes people to take sides. And when it's something as silly as the color of a dress, well then the consequences of choosing one side or the other aren't really that big of a deal. And in a lot of cases, you can simply choose to just not care. Uh, But then there are other conflicts that you simply can't choose to ignore. And the side that you choose to be on can have some pretty massive consequences. You may or may not have heard recently about a war that has broken out between two small nations in Western Asia, Azerbaijan and Armenia. Now, tensions have been simmering between these two countries for a long time, and they've got a bit of a history of getting into fights with each other before. But I have to be honest with you, when I read about this war in the news a few weeks back, 
I didn't really know who the good guys were in this conflict. Uh, and that's because I didn't really know anything about either of these two countries, and so I didn't really know what motivated them to start slinging bullets and hurling artillery shells at each other. And even though this war is literally life and death for people that are living in those two countries, because I'm so far away and so far removed from it, if I'm honest, I can kind of just sort of shrug my shoulders, sip my coffee, and scroll on to the next news article. And the reason for that is when you're far away from a battle whose outcome doesn't really affect you, then you can choose to be neutral and you can sort of not really have an opinion one way or another. But let's say that Australia has finally had enough of losing at rugby and they've finally had enough of Marmite instead of Vegemite being spread on toast and the time has come to make New Zealand pay for these injustices. And so they get the military together and they come and they invade our shores and they begin occupying our cities and most deviously of all, they climb up to the top of the beehive and they draw one extra star on the flag sitting up there. Well, then suddenly it would become really difficult for you to stay neutral because now the fighting is happening down the street instead of across an ocean from you. And so what that would cause you to do is you would have to make a decision whether you were going to fight or whether you were going to simply lay down and accept your new overlords from the land of Oz. And that's because when a battle draws near to you, you have to make a decision on which side you will be on. Now, luckily, we still seem to be on mostly good terms with our friends across the ditch. So chances are pretty good. We don't need to worry about them taking over New Zealand anytime soon. But the truth is you are in a battle. And this battle began a long time ago, and it's still raging today. It's a battle between spiritual powers of light and darkness, between good and evil, and it's playing out right now in our world around us, and also it's playing out inside of you. And as we dive into the book of Luke again, it is that fight that we will be exploring tonight, because there is a great battle happening in our world, and you must choose a side. So if you've got your Bible with you tonight, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 11. So in this passage, Jesus is out teaching his disciples and the crowds, and he's speaking with great authority about prayer and a number of other very important topics. And at one point, Jesus commands an evil spirit, a demon, to come out of a man who was mute and couldn't speak. Now, for a little context, this would have actually been pretty impressive to the crowd at the time because there was a belief among most people that a demon could only be cast out of a person if you could get that demon to say its name. And so what Jesus did was very impressive. And the good news with that is that God is never limited by the expectations or by the wrong beliefs of his people. Take a look at verse 14 in Luke 11 with me. It says, And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, 
the ruler of demons. When God shows up in power, something interesting tends to happen. We often think that when God performs miracles or breaks into situations in supernatural ways that everyone who sees it happen will suddenly surrender their lives and turn their hearts over to God, that they will choose to be on His side. But that isn't always the case because you see when God shows up in power, it often exposes the true motives of the people who see it happen. When that demon came out of that mute man, some people marveled and some people grumbled. I've seen this in my own life. I remember I used to work at a restaurant in Kansas City, and uh, there was this guy that I worked with for several years, and he sort of said himself that he didn't believe in God. And um, I worked with him for a while, and I sort of built up a little bit of trust. Uh, and there was one day at work where he just happened to casually mention that his back was bothering him. And so I said, um, would you mind if I prayed for you, for your back to be healed? And he kind of rolled his eyes, and he's like, well, I don't think it would hurt. And I don't know how serious he was about that, but I sort of took that as a yes. Uh, so I put my hand on him, and I began to pray for his back. It was this really funny situation, because here we are in the back of this kitchen, and he's sort of looking around, like, to see if anybody sees this weird kid praying for him in the back. And um, finished my prayer, and I said, hey, can you try bending your back a little bit and seeing if things feel different? And so he sort of rolls his eyes again, and he starts to bend his back, and then he, his eyes get a little wide, and he goes, what did you do? I said, I didn't do anything. <laughs> I said, I just prayed. He said, what are you, some kind of supernatural chiropractor or something? I said, no, I just prayed, and I, God healed you. And so what had happened was this guy who had had back issues for years was instantly healed in that moment. Now, you would think that when someone experiences a miracle like that in their own body, that that would sort of change their perspective on things. But unfortunately, that was not the case. He actually became more hostile and more angry and actually refused to talk with me about God ever again after that. And I think in that moment, he had a choice when he experienced a miracle in his own body. And that forced him to make a choice of which side he was going to be on. And unfortunately, in that moment, he chose to dig in on the side that he was already on. And that sort of thing actually seems to happen a lot. When the Spirit showed up with great miracles and power in Acts chapter 19 in the city of Ephesus, half the city went into revival and half the city went into riots. And in fact, every story of revival throughout history that led to many turning their hearts towards God also included, inevitably, multitudes of screaming haters and angry critics. When God's power shows up, it almost always forces people to pick a side where they will choose to either embrace His kingdom or to resist it. So in our passage, these grumblers are accusing Jesus of working with Beelzebub, which I know sounds like the name of a 90s alternative rock band, uh, but that is not the case. Beelzebub, however, uh, grotesquely translates to Lord of the Flies, and this is clearly referring to Satan here. So the accusation against Jesus is that he's using 
evil power to cast out demons from people. So let's see how Jesus responds. In verse 16, it says, Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, well, by who do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, then surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus catches these guys in their own sort of flawed thinking. Because why would Satan give Jesus power to cast out demons who aren't working or who are working as members of his own team? Well, the reason he wouldn't do that is because that would be dumb. So if Jesus isn't using evil power to cast out demons, then that only leaves one other option. And therefore, what these men and women are witnessing is a holy moment where the power of God is showing up and casting a demon out of a person. Now, how much of God's power does it take to cast a demon out of a person? Just his finger. In verse 21, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. My friends, Jesus is stronger than any demon. And when he sets a person free, he shares the spoils of all of his joy and all of his freedom with that person. Now, Jesus is pretty clear in our text that in this battle between good and evil, that he who is not with me is against me. The crowds he was speaking to had a front row seat to this battle when he watched him call this demon out of a person. And at that point, they had to choose a side. And you know what? So do I, and so do you. One of the beliefs that is common in our society today is that we must be open to all beliefs and all ideas. And, you know, we try our best to just be a good person that we need to be neutral towards other people's ideas and beliefs and that all opinions and perspectives are valid. And while I do want to emphasize that it is very important that we show respect to other people and we share our perspective with gentleness and with patience, I do also want to point out that Jesus was not neutral. There's a few times where Jesus flipped tables when he called out religious leaders on their hypocrisy and referred to a government official named Herod as a fox, which consequently at that time was an insult and not an observation of Herod's rugged handsomeness. Jesus was not afraid of calling people out on the junk in their lives and in their ways of thinking. 
But the question is, why? Was it because he wanted to embarrass them, guilt trip them into following him, make them feel ashamed? I don't think so. I think the reason Jesus exposed the sinful patterns in the lives of the people around him was because he understood that the sin within them would continue to rob them of the abundant life that he intended for them until they got set free from it. You see, the human heart can't actually remain neutral. It has to pick a side. We see this at work in our passage after Jesus casts the demon out of the mute man and then describes what happens when an evil spirit is cast out of a person. In verse 24, it says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then the spirit goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And therefore, the last state of that man is worse than the first. When we have an area of victory over the sin in our lives, it's very important that we don't just stop there. We must then invite the Spirit of God to come and to fill us and occupy the space in our heart that was once occupied by something else. Otherwise, we can fall back into agreement with spiritual darkness and actually end up worse than we were to start with. In the battle for our heart, we can't just empty ourselves of darkness. We must be filled with the presence and the light of our God. When we do this, we're choosing to be on God's side. And my friends, that is a blessed place to be. So there's this battle happening all around you and inside of you. It's a battle between angels, demons, good and evil. And this battle isn't a battle where God and Satan are sort of evenly matched and it's still sort of be, you know, to be determined whether or not God or Satan is going to win. It's not that kind of battle. The truth is the end of the story has already been determined and God wins. So the battle that's happening today isn't about which kingdom will win. It's about which kingdom you will choose. So the question is, what does it look like to choose a side? And how do I really know if I am choosing the right side? We're going to jump ahead a few verses in our passage, and we're going to see what Jesus had to say about this. In verse 33, it says, No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light and when the bright, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. So if the eye is the lamp of the body, 
then how do you know whether or not you are choosing to be on God's side? The answer can be found by asking, what are you spending the minutes and the hours of your life looking at? You see, what you are beholding, you are becoming. What you are taking in is what is taking root, and what is taking root is what will eventually become your fruit. If you fill your eyes with darkness, you will be filled with darkness. But if you turn your eyes towards the light, then you will be filled with light. What sort of movies are you watching? What sort of news and social media are you consuming? How much of your time are you using to gaze upon the treasures of God's Word and discovering who He is? Is your life steered more by the voices outside of you or more by the voice of God inside of you? If you want to change the person that you are becoming, then you must change what you are beholding. And if you're finding that God seems a little distant from you and you feel like you can't really see Him, well, I would guess that what you really need is to change the things that you are spending your time looking at. Set your eyes on things above, and the light of God will begin to fill you once more. And that brings us to another one of the dangers that all followers of God face, which is the temptation to follow God with our words, but not with our hearts. And I believe this isn't something that happens overnight, but rather happens slowly over time. When we take our eyes off of God and start focusing on ourselves or on the world around us. And as we get more and more fixated on the dimmer things of this world, we begin to lose our ability to see the brightness of God inside of our own hearts. And eventually, if we're not careful, we can end up in this place where we have all the language and all the knowledge of a follower of Jesus, but without any of the true substance on the inside where we can talk the talk, but we can't really walk the walk. And Jesus had some people like this around him during his time on earth. These Pharisees and religious leaders had all sorts of disciplines and rituals that they followed, and they figured that doing those sorts of things made them some pretty spiritual people. You know, in Texas, they have a saying to describe men who wear big hats and the cowboy boots with the spurs, but whose skin is pale and whose hands are soft and who have never actually worked a day in their life on a ranch. They refer to these guys as being all hat and no cattle, meaning they dress up like cowboys, but they've got no cows to take care of. And without cows, these poser cowboys are really just boys. And that's what these religious leaders were like. They were all hat and no cattle. They were posers. They were all ritual and no revelation. And when these men encountered Christ and the authenticity of his spirituality, they were forced to choose a side. Verse 37, as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. 
When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. This was a big no-no for Pharisees uh, and for Jesus in this setting. When you went into dinner, you had to cleanse yourself or else you were considered ceremonially unclean. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have. Then indeed all things are clean to you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done. But instead, you've left the others undone. If these religious leaders were as concerned about cleansing their hearts as they were about cleansing their hands, they would have been far more godly men. They cleanse themselves on the outside, but Jesus understood that it was far more important to be clean on the inside where it truly mattered. Jesus also called the Pharisees out on following the more trivial parts of the law, like tithing their herbs to God at the expense of missing out on the weightier things like justice and the love of God. After all, what good is a well-managed herb garden to God when the orphans and the widows are languishing in the street? I believe these Pharisees and religious leaders started out with good intentions. They wanted to serve God. They wanted to love Him. But somewhere along the way, they got their eyes off of what really mattered. And in the absence of God's light, their hearts hardened in the darkness that slowly overtook their souls. Chapter 11 of the book of Luke closes out with the Pharisees erupting in outrage at Jesus' audacity and speaking to them in such a way. And in this outrage, we see the beginning seeds of a corrosive hatred that would lead directly to Jesus' eventual torture and execution on the cross. What Jesus did here was he drew a line in the sand, and in their anger, the Pharisees clearly decided which side of that line they were on. And the same sobering choice awaits us too, because after all, all of us are in a battle, and we must choose a side. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To learn more about our church, visit c3chch.org.